I want you to imagine with me now the following scenario. Little Johnny, who's about five years old, been told by mom and dad, you must never play with matches. And every time they see him with matches, they sit and they tell him why he should not play with matches, and they explain to him the danger of playing with matches. Every chance he gets, he'll find those matches and plays with those matches. Every time mom and dad are not looking, he's playing with those matches, so he keeps playing with them day after day after day, and for several days, nothing happens. And then one day, he lights that match and catches fire, and lo and behold, his hands get burnt. He's not only in agony and in pain as he is transported by ambulance with mom and dad sitting by him, but he is crying out in his sensitive spirit to his mom and dad and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know you told me not to play with matches, and I disobeyed you. I am very sorry. Any normal mom or dad is going to say, son, we forgive you. They love the little fella. They deeply in agony over his physical pain. They wish they can take it upon themselves. And so, they assure him of their forgiveness. And they take him and get the best medical treatment that money can buy in order to help those burnt hands. They assure their son over and over and over and over again that they have forgiven his disobedience. Now, fast forward, 5, 10, 15 years has passed, and now the boy has become an adult. And he looks at those hands and he sees those scars that no plastic surgeries in the world has been able to obliterate. And he looks at these scars, now he's a man, and he said, I wonder if my parents really have forgiven me. I wonder if my parents really forgave that act of disobedience that caused these scars. His parents, on their part, keep on assuring him that they forgave him the moment he said he's sorry. But now the grown boy is tormented over the scars. If they had forgiven me, then why do I have these scars? Why can't they help me take these scars away? Why can't I get rid of these scars? Why do I have to live for the rest of my life with these scars? Well, they say to him, Johnny, you must understand. These scars are the consequences of your disobedience back then when you were a little boy. These scars have nothing to do with our grace in loving you. These scars have nothing to do with our forgiveness of you. These scars have nothing to do with our unconditional love for you. Please, Johnny, let those scars be a reminder for you of our act of forgiveness. Let them be a reminder of you of our act of unconditional love. Let them be a, a reminder of you of our act of grace toward you. The reason I'm saying this because I come across people all the time who confuse the grace of God with the deep scars that had taken place in their lives as a result of their disobedience. There are a lot of people who doubt the grace of God 
simply because of the scars that are there as a result of their past sins. And because of these scars, the enemy is using them in order to hamper people from being effective for God. He is using these scars in order to give them a critical spirit toward the work of God. He is using these scars in order to make them ineffective as witnesses for God. He uses these scars for a variety of ways to keep them from having victory and staying in defeat for the rest of their life. When God says over and over again in His Word, when you repent, I have forgiven you. My grace has covered all your past sins. I don't count your sins against you. The moment you turn to me, I have forgiven you and forgotten. But all, nobody can do anything about the scars. Nobody can do anything about the scars. And God is saying to us over and over in His Word, please, 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 Let these scars be a reminder for you of my grace. Let these scars be a reminder for you of my unconditional love for you. Let these scars be a reminder for you of my grace that abounds to you. We see this picture very clearly in Jacob's life today. Jacob moves from Bethel where he saw God alone, where he had an encounter with God one-on-one. He moves away from Bethel, where he had a dream that God gave him. He moves away from Bethel, where he had received a vision from God. And now he reaches his destination. Now, if you're following in this series of messages, you remember he deceived his father Isaac, and he took the blessing of firstborn that his father was going to give to Esau, by dressing like Esau and smelling like Esau and deceiving his father. And his mother said, you get away from here because your brother's going to kill you. So she said, go to my brother Laban, and he lives in Haran, and go there and stay until your brother Esau's anger has calmed down. They were in Beersheba, which is modern-day Gaza area. And then he traveled through Shechem, to Bethel. And Bethel is where he spent the night. It's about a 50-mile journey. It's an amazing move. He was anxious to get going. <laughs> and he goes from Bethel. Within three days, he gets to Haran, which not far from Nineveh, modern-day Iraq. And that's where Abraham came from. That's where Abraham's brother, Nahor, he was living there. And so, Rebekah, Jacob's mother, sent him to go back home to her family, to her brother Laban. And he comes to Haran his destination. And there in Haran, Jacob comes face to face with the consequences of his deception of his father. It is in Haran that he comes face to face with the scars of his deeds. It is in Haran that he comes face to face And he began to distinguish between the grace of God and the consequences of his sin. The mercy of God and the consequences of his sins. There it is in Haran where Jacob will come face to face with the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. When Jacob gets to Haran, of course, he, he encounters a beautiful girl. I mean, as soon as he got there. 
I can understand that because when I got to Australia, within weeks, I met a beautiful girl, and I fell hit over heels like Jacob, and I thank God for her. And so, by the way, you need to understand this, because someone's going to say, wait a minute, this is his cousin. How did he fall in love with his cousin? <laughs> Not only that back then they married cousins, there are so many cultures in the world today where marrying a cousin is the norm, even today, as I'm talking to you. I understand that it's not a practice here, but it is practiced in other cultures, so you need to understand that. Some of you younger people probably say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, he's falling in love with his cousin. Okay, poor old Jacob. He just looks at this girl, <laughs> and he falls apart. And even he tries to show off with superhuman strength. Normally, these stones on the wells are very big, and it takes several men to move them. But with superhuman strength, he moves that stone in order to water the sheep, Rachel's sheep. You know, like the men, sometimes you see sort of insecure men, when they see a beautiful woman go by, they suck their stomachs. Yeah. Have you seen that? Doesn't work. <laughs> you know, I couldn't help but think… <laughs> that there is nothing more beautiful and pathetic at the same time as a man in love. It really is. I mean, it is beautiful, but it's pathetic. <laughs> I mean, he will do what nobody been able to get him to do. <laughs> Some even lose the rational thinking. <laughs> it's like this guy who kept saying to this girl that who's deeply in love with her, said, you, I love you, and I want to marry you. And she said, no, you don't want to marry me. You want to marry a beautiful girl. And in his enthusiasm, he said, no, I don't want to marry a beautiful girl. I want to marry you. <laughs> Poor thing. This was the case in Jacob. He lost all rational thinking. He loved Rachel at first sight. And he was willing to do whatever it takes to get the girl. You see, unlike this tightwad who loved this girl, wanted to take her out to dinner. And then when he took her out to dinner, he said, I think we're going to go Dutch treats the whole evening. And she said, fine. So they go to dinner and whatever else. And then he takes her home. <laughs> and she said, you know, I'm really glad we went Dutch treat." Because that way you can kiss yourself goodnight. <laughs> well, this was not Jacob's problem. There were no Dutch streets here, I can tell you that. There were no Dutch streets. Jacob kissed Rachel right there at the well, and he said to himself, <laughs> I am going to do whatever it takes to marry this girl. Now, I don't want you to miss what comes next. I hope you're following me with Genesis 29 in your Bible. What follows next is really, <laughs> what do you call, a Middle East bargaining at its best. Really. If you've never had the chance to travel to the Middle East and see the bargaining in the bazaar, here it is. I'll show it to you. Now, Jacob wants the girl badly. Remember that now. And he was willing to do whatever it takes to get her. And guess what? His tricky uncle Laban, the girl's father, knew it. And he was going to milk that for all he can. It was customary back then for a guest to come and stay for two, three, maximum four days. No more. <laughs> After that, 
And the way they give him a message is by, let's fill his cup when he is drinking. And they said, okay, it's time for me to move on. Here, Jacob had been with his uncle for a solid month, and he's been working his heart out. And so Laban, in a subtle Middle East bargaining way, says to him, verse 15, he says to him, because you're my nephew, it doesn't mean that you work for nothing. Now, that's not how he talked, but that's as close as I can get. (laughs) I should pay you something. Then look at what happened next. I want you to look at what happened next, and I want you in your minds, please compare it with modern-day self-centeredness. I want you to compare it with modern-day instant gratification. Jacob said, I would be willing to work for seven years to have the privilege of marrying your daughter Rachel. Probably Jacob was hoping that the guy would have the decency and say, well, seven years, that may be too long. What about two or three years? That would be enough. (laughs) But there was no such luck. Tricky Uncle Laban jumped all over this offer, and he took it. Ah, but I want you to watch verse 20. Probably verse 20 is the most wonderfully romantic verse in the whole of the Bible. Look at it. Verse 20. The seven years seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? That really warms your heart, doesn't it? Hey, men, listen to me. There is nothing like a man who makes his woman to feel valued. Nothing like a man who makes his woman feel appreciated. Today, in our hurried culture, we don't take time to value and cherish and nourish our spouses. Husbands, I can only talk from my point of view since I only understand it from men's point of view. I want to tell you something. I'll make you a deal. If you would take time every single day, at least once a day, once a day, guys, once a day, and tell your wife how important she is, how valuable she is, how blessed you are to have her, how thankful you are to God for her, how much she means to you. I promise you, you will have heaven on earth in your home. Money-back guarantee. Now, ladies, I want you to cooperate with me here, because <laughs> I don't have enough money to keep all these uh, promises, okay? I know it will work. Jacob adored Rachel But her father, tricky Uncle Laban, knew that. And here the plot thickens. Rachel had an older sister. Now, when the Semitic language, like Hebrew and other language, use the word weak-eyed, doesn't necessarily mean blind person, but it's what we call albino. That's what really is. Literally translated, that's what the word means. And so, on the night of the wedding, after he worked his heart out for seven years, without, of course, the help of electricity, (laughs) the father sends Leah to the wedding tent, Rachel's older sister, but not Rachel. Now, I, I don't know. I thought about this. I said, well, she probably dressed like Rachel. She probably smelt like Rachel. Probably she had Rachel's belt. And so, in the morning after... Jacob wakes up, and he sees what happened, and he freaks out. (laughs) And he goes out, and he 
has it out with his now father-in-law, Uncle Laban. Look at verse 25. I want you to underline it if you have your Bible. It's a very important verse. Probably the most important verse in the whole chapter. Verse 25 of Genesis 29. Jacob goes out to his uncle, now his father-in-law, and he says, You have deceived me. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's what you call the chickens came home to roost. (laughs) Here are the scars. Here are the scars, beloved friends. The deceiver is now being deceived. And sadly, this is not the last time Jacob experienced deception or become a victim of deception. There are a few more times in his life where he's going to be deceived again, as we will see in the days to come. He deceived his blind father. Now he's being deceived by his uncle, letting him marry a blind woman whom he did not love. Although Jacob managed to marry Rachel seven days afterward, but he had to work for seven more years, if you're counting as 14 years altogether. There are three ironies here I don't want you to miss. Three ironies. Irony number one. Esau was supposed to serve Jacob by oracle from God. It says so. The older shall serve the younger. Esau was supposed to serve Jacob, but here Jacob is serving Laban. Irony number two. By getting Leah first, then Rachel, Jacob must have understood, at least felt, how Esau must have felt as a firstborn. Irony number three. Jacob was deceived by Rachel's father, just as he deceived his own father. The deceiver (laughs) was deceived. What is happening here? This is the scars that I was talking about. This is sowing and reaping that has nothing to do with the grace of God because the grace of God had forgiven you eternally. Sowing and reaping, beloved friends, is as real and as true as the moon and the stars and the sun in heaven. It is biblical from cover to cover. And there are at least three things that I want to share with you very, very quickly, very quickly about sowing and reaping. If you're taking notes, write them down. Number one, whatever you sow, that you will reap. Listen to what Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to respond back to me, okay? If you sow wheat, what do you get? Okay? If you sow cotton, what do you get? Let me ask you again. Have you ever seen anyone who sowed wheat and got cotton? No. If you want to reap friendship, what do you sow? If you want to reap love, what do you sow? If you want to reap peace, what do you sow? Amen. Secondly, the same proportion by which you sow, that same proportion with which you're going to harvest and you're going to reap. You cannot just 
sow sparingly and hope for a big harvest. Again, let me show you a verse in which I staked my life for many years. Luke 6, 38, here's what Jesus said. Give, and it shall be given to you. For by the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6, 38. Memorize it. By the measure you use in sowing is that measure you're going to get in reaping. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul said, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Third thing I want to tell you about sowing and reaping is this. No matter how long it may take, no matter how long is the delay, no matter how many crop failures you may experience along the way, if you sow, you will reap. Let me ask you this. Have you prayed for something for so long, knowing that your prayer is consistent with the will of God and the Word of God, and you have not seen the answer yet? Let me tell you something. Keep on praying. Keep on planting. The harvest will come. Have you been faithful? Have you been generous? Have you been self-giving? But you have not seen an abundance yet. Keep on planting. Don't stop. The harvest will come. And just as sowing and reaping was in the negative in Jacob's life, it works the same in the positive. In fact, you see it more in the Scripture in the positive. So when you sow in abundance, you receive in abundance. Let me ask you this. Do you have scars from the past that seem to be keeping you from sowing seed in the kingdom of God? Other scars in your life that seem to be keeping you from being effective for Christ? Other scars in your life that seem to hamper you back in your walk with God? Other scars that are stopping you from experiencing victory day after day? Listen to me. Listen to me. Don't fret. If the grace of God overruled in your life, if you've experienced the forgiveness of God, don't let the scars pull you down, but rather let them remind you of the grace of God. Let them remind you of the mercy of God. Let them remind you of the forgiveness of God. Let them remind you of the power of God that is working in your life. And don't ever forget, don't ever forget, don't ever forget what I'm going to tell you. God can write His purpose straight with a crooked pencil. God can take a bent and twisted instrument and use it powerfully. God's grace is more powerful than your scars. God's grace can polish the roughest of the diamond. God's grace calls the unworthy. God's grace loves the unlovable. God's grace uses the unusable. God's grace can take your scar and turn them into stars. So don't let your scars pull you down and depress you. That's what the devil wants to do in your life. That's what the devil wants to do in my life. I would imagine that's what the devil wanted to do in Paul's life. Here he is, was a terrorist. 
Now, the evangelist preaching the gospel of love of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And no doubt the devil came to him many a time and says, Paul, how can you do that? Oh, you hypocrite, Paul. Look what you've done. But God took those scars and turned them into stars, and he became the great apostle Paul. Listen, do not allow the enemy to let him use your scars in your life to hold you back from doing great and mighty things for God, which God wants for you to do. Let them remind you, instead of your past failure and sin and disobedience that has been forgiven by God, let them remind you of the grace of God that abounds to you and to me. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Father God, how many times the enemy tried to use the scars in my life to hold me back, but your grace was sufficient. You reminded me what you reminded with the Apostle Paul, that my weakness becomes perfect with your strength. And Father God, I pray that you would give them the spirit of power and the spirit of strength and the spirit of conviction that you're a God who can turn their scars from hindrance to opportunity. Father, I pray this, believing that you are more ready to answer than we are to pray. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.